Well, imagine yourself at a heavyweight boxing match. The champ climbs into the ring and the announcer screams to the crowd, let's get ready to rumble. Well, that's how Revelation chapter 6 opens. And yet, surprisingly, God's champ appears as a little lamb. Verse 1. Now, I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. This lamb is going to throw a massive punch. The lamb will roar like a lion. God's judgment is about to fall on the rebel planet. You remember in chapter 5, we saw the title deed to all the universe. On the cross, Jesus paid to redeem the earth. And now in chapter 5, he takes title. Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll. But you see, purchasing a parcel and taking possession are two different tasks. Satan is a squatter. And he isn't going to relinquish control without a fight. And thus, as Jesus opens the scroll, he pops each of its seven seals. And chapters 6 through 19 records the devastating judgments that follow. Satan is about to be evicted from planet earth. John writes, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Here is the first of the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. John sees four horses in these verses. A white horse, red horse, black horse, and pale horse. These are hefty war horses. They're snorting. They're stomping. They're raring to bolt from the gate. The white horse carries the Antichrist. The red horse, war. The black horse, famine. And the pale horse, death. Now, some Bible teachers mistake the rider on the white horse as Jesus. And this is exactly what Satan intends. Hey, if you wanted to fake a $100 bill, you don't put Obama on the front. Try to spend an Obama buck and it won't fool anybody. You want the bogus bill to look authentic. And this is the devil's strategy. He wants the false Christ on the white horse to look like the true Christ. It is true that in Revelation 19, we see the Lord Jesus returning to this earth, riding on a white war horse. But that's where the similarities end. Jesus returns at the end of this period of judgment, after the seventh seal. This guy rides in at its outset. Recall too from chapter 1, Jesus has a sharp sword, but this false Christ carries a bow. You remember in Genesis chapter 11, Nimrod the hunter was the first to rebel and lead a revolt against God. Tradition says that he was the inventor of archery, this Nimrod. After the flood, God hung up his bow of judgment in the clouds. He would never again judge the world with water. The rainbow was a symbol of that promise. But Nimrod hated God and he tried to draw men after himself. His bow was a symbol of conquest, a conquest over the hearts of men. You see, this is the goal of the rider on this white horse. He has a bow, but no arrows. Apparently, he will conquer the nations without firing a shot. He'll be hailed as a man of peace, an expert in diplomacy. He designs a sinister shalom, a false peace, and with it, he deceives the nations. There's also a difference in the crowns that he wears. 
His is the laurel wreath or the competitor's prize. In Revelation 19, Jesus wears a diadem. That's the kingly crown. See, this rider on the white horse, he steals his authority. And it only lasts briefly. Jesus has the right to rule. I read of an Israeli guide who once confessed to his group, I'm so desperate for peace, I'd sign a deal with the devil if it would mean peace. And that is exactly what the Israelis will do one day. Daniel 9 tells us that this period of history called Great Tribulation begins when Israel signs a treaty with this white horse rider, a.k.a. the Antichrist. Verse 3 tells us, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people would kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. It doesn't take long for this false peace of the white horse to crumble. Paul predicted in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Today the world chants, give peace a chance, but this peace will be short-lived. This second horse speaks of war and bloodshed. It foreshadows all the skirmishes that lead up to the final battle of Armageddon. Notice its color is appropriate. It's blood red. The death toll will be astronomical. Millions upon millions will die violently. And as the world suffers from war, Jesus pops another seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. In John's day, scales were a symbol for commerce. All buying and selling was done with the use of balances and scales. He says, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Now in the Roman world, a denarius was a typical day's wage. And so here, basic food staples are costing huge sums of money. Inflation has skyrocketed. Global famine has driven up the price of food. You know, living in America today, we're sheltered from the conditions in which most of the world lives today. It's been frequently stated one-third of the world's population has plenty to eat. That's us here in America. One-third is undernourished, and one-third is on the verge of starvation. In recent years, superstorms have become the norm, it seems. Imagine a storm so severe, or perhaps a global drought, that wipes out an entire growing season. Worldwide famine is not that hard for us to envision. Imagine suddenly your kids joining the African children you see on TV with sunken eyes and bloated bellies and exposed ribs. Notice too the irony here in verse 6. Basic foods will be depleted, but there's still an abundance of luxury items like oil and wine. I think it's God's sarcasm on man's priorities. We'll have booze to drink, but no bread to eat. It's even more profound if the oil in verse 6 refers to petroleum, not just olive oil. We'll have gasoline to fill up and drive all of our fancy cars, but no food for our bellies. Well, there's coming a time when Jesus will rock this planet. False peace is followed by war. War is followed by famine. And famine is followed by death. Verse 7. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, 
Come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse. The Greek word translated pale is chloris, from which we get our words chlorine or chlorophyll. It's a greenish yellow color. Think of the flesh tones of a person who's seasick, who's turned green, or a corpse without makeup. We're told in the name of him who sat on this fourth horse was death, and Hades will follow him. Death has an entourage. Hades fills up on the heels of death. The pale rider is thinning out a wicked population. You know, in recent years, we've read of people contracting mysterious flesh-eating bacteria, needing their limbs amputated, even dying. World Health Organizations warn of future antibiotic-resistant superplagues that could easily kill millions of the human family. The pale rider will have plenty of diabolical tools at his disposal. Well, add together the cumulative effect of all four horses, and the impact is staggering, John writes. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. In other words, a quarter of the world's population will die. You know, currently the global population is a tad over 7 billion people. Thus, 25% equals 1.75 billion people. It's hard to imagine 1.75 billion of anything, let alone dead bodies. Did you know, if you counted one number per second, it would take you 11 days to reach 1 million. That seems like a long time, but it would take you 56 years to count to 1.75 billion. Now imagine that many corpses littering the planet. These four horsemen will kill one out of every four humans. And all the while this carnage is occurring on earth, remember what John saw happening in heaven. Believers from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are before God's throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is Jesus. That's the church. That's you and me, my friends. You see, before this judgment comes down, the church will go up. We'll be raptured or snatched away. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, God did not appoint us to wrath. But there are seven seals, not just four. And in verse 9, Jesus breaks another. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. As Jesus pops the seals and judges the earth, guess where the rebels vent their frustrations? Rather than take responsibility for the consequences of their own sin, they shift blame on the believers. Followers of Jesus will become the brunt of their anger. And during this time of great tribulation, folks will recognize God's judgment and they'll turn to Jesus. They'll be saved, but they won't be safe. For the rider on the white horse will criminalize being a Christian. Anybody who takes Jesus as Lord will be silenced. There'll be a multitude of martyrs. You know, today the world glorifies tolerance for all religions except Christianity. Faith in Christ is a sticking point. And it's a small leap from bigotry to brutality. The false Christ will hand down this death penalty. We see the martyrs that result in verse 9. Their souls, not bodies, are crying out from under the altar in heaven. This means that they've missed the rapture. 
When Jesus retrieves the church, he'll be a body snatcher. He raptures not only our soul, but he resurrects our body. Thus, these bodiless souls were left behind. They put their faith in Christ after the rapture. The tribulation believers are camped under the altar. They've been brutalized. They're victims of injustice. And they let us know it in verse 10. They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Boy, realize they, they sing a familiar refrain, don't they? They sound like a lot like the prayers that we pray at times. When we see a criminal walk out of a courtroom because of a technicality, or when we watch justices uphold rules that sanction the murder of innocent babies, or when we realize that evil men have enslaved young girls in the sex trade, or when we hear of deviants who make millions off child porn, don't you get angry? Don't you cry out for vengeance? Isn't there a righteous recoil in you whenever you see evil prosper and good despised? It should be. In Psalm 58, David saw evil men going unpunished, and there he prayed, break their teeth in their mouth, O God. And we've all prayed for a few teeth to be broken. John continues, then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them, that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. In Revelation 19, Jesus returns. And when he does, the martyr's blood gets revenged. Their pain gets eased. But for a time, they'll have to wait. And this word wait, this is the challenge for our faith as well. Jesus will right all wrongs, but not on our timetable. Verse 11, rest a little while longer is as relevant to us today as it will be for these future saints. And then in verse 12, Jesus breaks the scariest seal yet. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. This earthquake is the big one. It blows up the Richter scale. The earth convulses soot and smoke that turns the sky black and the moon red. We're told, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. The Greek word translated stars is asterisk. It applies not only to stars, but to asteroids or meteorites, any cosmic projectile streaking through outer space. And just as an autumn wind rustles the trees and leaves begin to fall to the ground, one day Jesus will shake the heavens above us and celestial bodies will pummel the planet earth. He says, then the sky receded as a scroll when it rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. The upheaval is almost beyond description. Obviously, when he cracks open the sixth seal, Jesus takes the gloves off. It's a rough, bare-knuckled strike. Jesus unleashes massive, cataclysmic judgments upon the rebel planet. We won't be, but if we were on the earth experiencing these judgments, I think it would make us all want to take back some of our cries for vengeance. I mean, all I can say to you is pity on you if you miss the rapture, and you're still here when this sixth seal breaks. 
Take all of the meteorite movies of recent years. You know, it's become a film genre. Armageddon, Deep Impact, Night of the Comet, Doomsday Rock, Asteroid, etc., etc. Take all of the Hollywood special effects combined and they're tame compared to the damage that such an event will actually do. I've got a movie for you. It's not a Hollywood flick. It's a National Geographic special. It's titled Asteroids, Deadly Impact. It's a documentary on not just the possibility of a major meteorite strike in the future, but its inevitability. Do you realize that every day the earth gets bombarded with 20 tons of cosmic rock? Most of it's space dust, but larger strikes occur. Geologists can take you to over 140 craters all around the globe that are the result of incoming asteroids and comets and meteors. And according to verse 13, it'll happen again. Recently, CBS News ran a special report. It quoted astronomers who estimate that there are over 400,000 NEOs or near-Earth objects up to 1,000 meters wide that could strike planet Earth with little or no warning. You might recall the asteroid that exploded over Russia last year. It was 60 feet wide. It injured 1,500 people. This past Tuesday, CNN ran a story. Maybe you saw it. A close call in space tonight. Asteroid zips past Earth. This rock was the size of three football fields. Not just 60 yards wide. Of course, only in space is 2 million miles considered a close call, but it did cause alarm. Well, when Jesus breaks this sixth seal, it will happen. The stars fall. Then a superquake creates massive fissures in the earth's crust. Continents shift. Islands vanish. As the ground shakes under their feet, the inhabitants of the earth, they look up and the sky is receding or it's rolling up like a paper party horn after a blast. In the movie Deep Impact, the U.S. government sets up a survival village in the caves of Missouri. They call it the Ark. I wonder if the scriptwriters read verse 15. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? What a phrase. The wrath of the Lamb. Here is the ultimate oxymoron. No animal is as docile and gentle as a lamb. Likewise, no one is as tender and gentle with the trusting heart than Jesus. But you see, the day will come when he will be gentle no longer. The rejecting heart will taste his wrath. The lamb will roar. This is a side of Jesus we all need to see. Well, the sixth seal closes with God throwing a fury of punches. He has the earth on the ropes. It appears to be a knockout, and it raises the question, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, chapter 7 provides the answer. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. It's a figurative way of saying the four points of the compass, east, west, north, and south. The four angels are holding the four winds of the earth 
that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Wind is a mighty force. And yet just four angels wrestle the jet streams to submission. And suddenly the earth grows quiet. A few seconds earlier, the winds of judgment were howling. But now God has a few issues for us to weigh and consider. Judgment is not all that he has on his mind. You'll notice a structure in Revelation 6 through 19. God's wrath comes in three waves. There's seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls. In between each seven, John inserts a brief vignette of a person or persons central to the events that occur in the Great Tribulation. And in John chapter 7, we find two of those vignettes. He sees two people groups. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. The angels who had harnessed the wind and will harm the earth are first given a special mission. God orders them, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Boy, Jesus is about to seal the fate of the wicked world, but first he seals his own. And in doing so, he reveals his heart. Jesus suspends his judgment here to show mercy. Recall a seal was an insignia stamped into hot wax. It was a mark of ownership. The seven seals on the scroll spoke of Jesus' proprietary rights to planet earth. Now he's about to seal a group of people. For in this time of tribulation, there will be folks who will embrace Jesus as Lord. And he'll seal them with the Holy Spirit. He'll put his mark of ownership on their foreheads, the foreheads of his servants. This reveals the master's heart. In the midst of judgment, he still shows mercy. Verse 4 reads, And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, of the tribe of Naphtali, of the tribe of Manasseh, of the tribe of Simeon, of the tribe of Levi, of the tribe of Issachar, of the tribe of Zebulun, of the tribe of Joseph, of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. It's funny how many cults lay claim to these 144,000. You know, for a time, the Jehovah's Witnesses identified themselves as the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7. That is, until their roles swelled to more than that number. That's when they modified their view. The 144,000 are only elite Jehovah's Witnesses. The worldwide Church of God claimed to be part of the 144,000, as did some Seventh-day Adventists. And yet you have to ask, does anyone read verse 4? For it clearly identifies this group as 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. These guys are Jews. If someone ever tells you they're one of the 144,000, ask them, which tribe? There's 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. This group is an exclusively Jewish fraternity. Realize there are three types of people in the world today. There are Jews and Gentiles and the church. And only one of these three groups will be spared the wrath of God to come. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 states, God did not appoint us to wrath. 
1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 says of Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And both those verses speak of Christians. You see, a great escape awaits believers. We'll be raptured again before the judgment comes down. The church will go up. The great tribulation is not for Christians. It's for unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. It's the final opportunity for both. And apparently this jolt is needed to open eyes that have been blind to God's truth. These 144,000 Jews will believe. God will seal them with his spirit. He'll equip them and then he'll use them to spread the gospel. You see, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his followers, go and make disciples of all the nations. And here's the job of believers today, to preach the gospel. But in the great tribulation, the church is in heaven. God will still use the gospel. For it alone has the power to salvation. But in the church's absence, the delivery system for the gospel changes. He'll use other means. In Revelation 14, God sends angels flying through the skies, declaring to humanity the everlasting gospel. Revelation 11 speaks of two witnesses who grabbed the world's attention by performing miracles. And here in chapter 7, he empowers 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And imagine their effectiveness. These are Jews for Jesus. These are Jews that have been converted to Christianity. These are Jews that have been sealed and filled with the Spirit. In chapter 9, we'll read that they're armed with supernatural protection. In fact, they preach in the wake of the rapture. That also kind of adds some punch to their message. And then up against this backdrop of these horrible judgments, the promise of eternal life, we can expect millions of people to come to Christ through their witness. Did you know that everywhere in the world today, apart from North America and Europe, Christianity and the church are experiencing unprecedented growth? South Korea, Africa, China, India, Indonesia, even traditional Muslim countries. All across the planet tonight, the church is growing. One estimate is by 80,000 members per day. 3,500 churches start every week. And yet the largest, most sweeping spiritual awakening is still future. And ironically, it won't occur until the church has been raptured. In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus foresaw a final worldwide burst of evangelistic activity prior to his return. And it gets carried out largely by this supernaturally sealed army of Jews. And notice the immediate results of their efforts. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Now here's another group of believers, now a horde of Gentiles. Now remember, this is not the church, we're in heaven. This group consists of people who believed in the gospel witness of the 144,000 and embraced Christ. And pay attention to the size of this group. John calls it a great multitude which no one can number. Later in Revelation 9, John will see an army that he numbers at 200 million. Well, if this group is a size that no one can number, it has to exceed 200 million. Perhaps a billion people will be saved during the Great Tribulation. And this great multitude is no longer on earth. 
Now they're before the throne in heaven. Apparently many people will die for their faith. These are the future martyrs. I've heard well-meaning preachers today imply that after the rapture, all hope is lost. That you've missed the bus. But that's not biblical. You can be saved after the rapture. But it will be a deadly proposition. For by this future point, there's no more tolerance Christianity will be made a capital crime. And it's not just martyrdom you should fear. Throughout history, evil men have devised tortures that make death a welcomed friend. It's been said the great tribulation will be the Christian holocaust. Notice though, not only the number of people who get saved during this period, but the nationalities of this crowd in heaven. It says, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now recall the question at the end of the sixth seal. Who is able to stand? Well here he tells us folks who believe in the gospel. It's no surprise that everyone who stands before the throne and the Lamb. Is there because of the gospel. And notice the composition of this crowd. They're from all nations. Not one of earth's 169 countries is missing. All tongues. Not a single language group ends up unreached. All peoples. Every race, every skin tone, every culture is represented. Heaven will be rich in diversity. Yet yet though this multitude is culturally diverse, notice they are spiritually united. Before the Lamb, they all come clothed with white robes. Hey, heaven will be multicultural. You'll see flowing dashikis and hoodies and capes and Wraps, lots of robes will be in heaven. But everyone's robe will be the same color. It'll be white. For that's what represents the purity of Christ. Isaiah puts it, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Jesus is the commonality that's greater than all our differences. And notice in heaven, we all worship alike. The crowd stands with palm branches in their hands. In heaven, it's Palm Sunday every day. You see, the Lamb hasn't saved us and cleansed us just so we can go to heaven. There is a job that we do once we arrive. Heaven's chief occupation is to praise the Lord. And this is what John hears. Verse 10 describes a deafening roar that goes up from the multitude saying, crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. Heaven again, it is the most racially and culturally diverse place you'll ever go. And yet spiritually, it's homogenous. All heaven is in total agreement. Everyone got there the same way. Salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. Muhammad, Mormonism didn't get you to heaven. Roman Catholicism and the Pope and the Virgin Mary didn't help. The Buddha can't get them to heaven. Only God and the Lamb can get you to heaven. And then verse verse 11 is an avalanche of praise. It says, all the angels then stood around the throne. That's billions and billions, I suppose. And the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne. Everybody's joining in this redeemed group to praise the Lord. And they worship God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.
Notice their praise is framed by two amens. It's a double affirmation. You know, the most commonly held concept in the universe is that God is worthy of glory and honor and thanks and power and might forever. Only Satan and stubborn men resist that truth. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I'm sure John is a little stunned. I mean, why does the elder in heaven ask him? He's the new kid on the block. John's still wearing his visitor's badge. He replies, and I said to him, sir, you know. John sort of tosses it back. He, he has no idea. And so he said to me, and the elder answers his own question. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And here's another oxymoron. Made white in the blood Normally, blood doesn't turn a robe white. But the blood of Jesus has holy hemoglobin. It takes out the grimiest grime. It takes out the dirtiest stain. The only way to be spiritually clean is to wash your robe in the blood of Christ. Now, in chapter 8, the lion will order the angels who are holding back the wind to stand down. Judgment will resume. But chapter 7 is some breathing room to ponder and to consider a number of things. The Lord's desire to show mercy. His trust in the gospel. Diversity in heaven. Even hardship on earth. And in the next three verses, we get a glimpse at the conditions in heaven. And this will blow your mind. Verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. The elder is speaking of this great multitude who come out of the great tribulation. But these pictures are in the travel brochure that heaven sends to all believers. First notice, the focus in heaven isn't the glassy sea. It's not even the streets of gold. Heaven spins around what? God's throne. They are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. God's throne is the centerpiece of heaven. It's the center of the universe. And what will we be doing around that throne? We're told we'll serve him day and night. Apparently, we'll all have specific assignments in heaven. We'll have projects. We'll have vital activities. We won't just be trampolining on cumulus clouds or learning to play the harp. We'll be busy, not bored. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And this is what makes heaven so heavenly. We'll finally be with our Lord Jesus, unhindered, unencumbered. Verse 16, and they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. This was a problem for these believers who came out of great tribulation. You remember the black horse of famine. But now in heaven, there's lots to eat and drink. Did you know heaven is a land of second helpings? And there's protection from the harsh environment, the judgments caused on earth. Heaven brings relief. We're told the sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. Verse 17 conveys one of the most beautiful thoughts in the Bible. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead, lead them to living fountains of waters. Notice this, the Lamb will be our shepherd. How cool is that? And God will wipe away 
every tear from their eyes. But notice, there will be tears to wipe away. Folks that come out of the great tribulation will have suffered much. They will have cried many tears. Don't be one of them. Make the lamb your shepherd today. And then chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I have heard the crude suggestion that verse 1 proves there are no females in heaven. Since no woman could ever stay silent for 30 minutes. Shame on any pastor who would have made such a statement. I would have never said such a thing. Actually, up until now, heaven has been a very loud, a very noisy place. Everywhere, people are falling down before the throne. They are worshiping the Lamb. About the time one voice fades, another erupts, another prays. But now a holy hush falls over the halls of heaven. And for about a half an hour, it was so quiet in heaven you could hear a pin drop. It's as if heaven gasps at what's about to happen next. Verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. Remember the structure of the judgments John sees in Revelation. Seven seals are popped. Seven trumpets are blown. Seven bowls are poured out. Seven thunders are mentioned, but not revealed. And here the seventh seal becomes the seven trumpets. And then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. This heavenly angel is acting like a priest. In fact, what John calls an angel, which is really just another word for messenger could actually be our Lord Jesus. We know from Hebrews that Jesus is the great high priest who serves before God in the heavenly temple. Well, this angel, he grabs the censer that's full of our prayers. Prayers for truth and justice and righteousness and fairness. Prayers launched in response to life's hardships and heartaches. Prayers prayed from your own desperation. Prayers that Right now, you think are going unheeded. These are the prayers. All of our prayers, our deepest feelings, are now taken and they're mixed with the fire of God's wrath and they're turned into judgment. And like popcorn, they start hopping out of the pan. Thunderclaps and lightning strikes and the earthquakes. That's when the violent brew is tossed out onto the earth. The censer is emptied to censure the wicked. It's God's answer to our cry for a more righteous world. There are folks today who are able to beat the system. You know them. Somehow they avoid judgment and they get away with their crimes. But that will end when these trumpets blow. For God will see to it that justice is served up once and for all. 
And in verse 6, the angels warm up. So the seven angels who had these seven trumpets, they prepared themselves to sound. They put the reeds to their lips. Verse 7, the first angel sounded. And hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. Is this an asteroid? Is this a nuclear bomb? Did Iran make good on its threats? Did some terrorist get his hands on a loose nuke? Some kind of firestorm is responsible for a third of the earth's trees and vegetation burning to a crisp. You know, it's estimated the detonation of just 25 thermonuclear warheads could scorch an area the size of mid-America, from the Appalachians to the Rockies. Wouldn't take much. A nuclear explosion compresses the humidity, shoots it up into the upper atmosphere where it freezes and falls back to the earth as ice. And thus, verse 7, the hail and the fire. And then the second angel sounded. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. I mean, with each of these trumpets, judgment intensifies. You see, these are global events that will rock our planet off its foundations. And they're prophetic. God has written them into our future. Here a third of the sea would amount to the world's oceans except the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. Quite an area of water. Notice in verse 8, John sees a great mountain burning thrown into the sea. Again, is this an incoming meteorite? Currently, NASA is tracking as many as 4,000 NEOs or near-Earth objects streaking through space. As we noted, every month there's another potential strike we read about. Recently, I saw a National Geographic special which referred to these projectiles in terms that John uses. The special actually called the mountains tumbling through space. Here John sees something like a great mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea. Donald Yeomans, an astronomer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, he made this statement. Space is filled with objects that threaten Earth. Earth runs its course about the sun in a swarm of asteroids. Sooner or later, our planet will be struck by one of them. Even now, it's as if God keeps firing warning shots across the bow of our ship to encourage us to repent. In verse 10, another trumpet blasts. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven. Here again, the Greek word translated star is astera or asteroid. It refers to any heavenly body. It plummets, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, which means bitterness. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Whatever this star is, it has devastating effect. It contaminates a third of the world's fresh water supply. Notice this, a third of vegetation scorch, a third of the oceans ruined, now a third of the fresh water contaminated. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, 
and likewise the night. If a giant comet or meteorite impacted Earth, it could tip our planet further on its axis and somehow alter its orbit, thus reducing exposure to the sun by a third. There, there is another way to think of this catastrophe. At times, the Bible uses, quote, the language of observation. It describes phenomena as it appears to the viewer. We do this when we speak of a sunrise or a sunset. I mean, the sun isn't actually rising or setting. The phenomena is caused by a rotating earth. But it appears from our perspective as if the sun is rising in the sky or setting beyond the horizon. Here it could be that some obstruction, some thick cloud perhaps, blocks our view of the third of the sky. And then verse 13, And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In short, the angel is warning the inhabitants of earth, you ain't seen nothing yet. Three more shrill trumpets remain. And what a contrast here. In heaven, the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. While on earth, they say, woe, woe, woe. And we'll get to these last three trumpet blasts next time. And so there we have Revelation 6, 7, and 8. 